0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-partisan basis. And today it's time for a thrilling feature, Ask Jeff. Yes, I'll be answering your excellent questions about the Constitution You were so great to send them by email on social media and Twitter, thanks to everyone who took the time to write and submit such thoughtful questions and also tell me what you thought of the show, and I'm really looking forward to doing my best to answer them. So joining me as guest inquisitor uh, is my great colleague Tom Donnelly, our senior fellow for constitutional studies. Uh, Tom supervises all of our constitutional content here at the Constitution Center, and we Have so much fun discussing your questions and trying to educate each other about
1: the Constitution. Take it away, Tom. Thank you so much, Jeff, and let's get right to it. Uh, Question number one. We're getting ready for summer. Any book suggestions for the constitutional nerds among us?
0: Dear constitutional nerds in the We the People audience, I have high expectations for your beach reading. You must take Madison and Montesquieu and Jean-Jacques Berlimaqui with you to Rehoboth or... Uh, California or wherever you are tanning this summer. So let me just tell you about some phenomenal books that have come over the transom recently. One of the great parts of this job is I get to read uh, constitutional books and interview authors. And here are two of my favorites from recent conversations. Uh, The first is The Crisis of the Middle-Class Constitution, Why Economic Inequality Threatens Our Republic. It's by Ganesh Sitaraman. And what I just found so fascinating about it is uh, Ganesh resurrects this tradition of, I think, what he calls the anti-oligarchy constitution, which dates back to Madison and Jefferson and the framers. I hadn't realized how deeply entrenched in the framing era debates, concerns about economic inequality were. And Ganesh talks about Madison trying to look forward to the year 1930 and imagine that economic inequality might become so great that the equality of conditions that he thought was necessary for democracy to flourish might atrophy. So it's just deeply detailed in resurrecting a forgotten but crucial constitutional history that he traces from Madison and Jefferson through Jackson, through my hero Louis Brandeis and Woodrow Wilson, all the way up to the 20th century, and I learned a lot from it. Another really wonderful, surprising, and fresh book is called Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics? And it's by Mark Thompson, the president and CEO of the New York Times company. And it's just a deeply learned, surprising, and provoking discussion about how the degradation of rhetoric has degraded our democracy. Thompson is a classicist. He studied Greek and Latin at Oxford at Merton College. And he identifies tropes of rhetoric that uh, rhetoricians from... Uh, Socrates and Plato uh, up, used to convince and sometimes sway the mob, and then talks about how a bunch of changes, including social media and polarization, have led to their degradation today. So it is fresh, learned, and surprising. Mark Thompson is part of our great Madisonian Constitution for All commission that's going to try to resurrect Madisonian values in today's polarized post-fact society, and I learned a lot from the book. Speaking of Madison, um, it's the summer is always a good time to study James Madison. There are a bunch of Madison biographies that are about to be published, including one by uh, John Meacham, the great biographer of most recently President George H.W. Bush. But last year uh, at the center, Lynn Cheney came to talk about her excellent biography of uh, James Madison called James Madison, A Life Reconsidered. And it's so full of human details including the role that epilepsy played in his awkward courtship with Dolly but also his retiring and scholarly demeanor. He was, because he had these uncontrollable attacks, he um, was naturally more drawn to seclusion and he did his compromising at the Constitutional Convention behind closed doors. And then, uh, in in the in the Madisonian spirit, I was just browsing uh, a great uh, used bookstore in DC, recently second story books, one of the few surviving uh, secondhand bookstores in DC, and found uh, the following little book, but which is really interesting, James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-government. It's by Colleen A. Sheehan. And Sheehan discusses how Madison, at the end of his life, is actually worried that new media technologies like the broadside, press won't be sufficient to connect farmers and merchants and people in different parts of the country, and he's worried that the public reason that democracy relies on will atrophy without these new media technologies. So deeply relevant to the subject of our Madisonian constitution and just a, a really fresh and surprising book. Uh, also uh, found it Second uh, Story, um, a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time and just uh, got into Gary Wills' great Henry Adams and the Making of America. Wills, of course, one of our greatest intellectual historians, and he describes how Adams's great two-volume history of the Madison and Jefferson administration, which you should definitely take to the beach with you if you have some time, one of the great works of American historiography, Wills says was just widely misunderstood because, according to Wills, many of the writers about Madison's history uh, just read the first Volume, where he's talking about the U.S. before the Jefferson administration and talking about how awful everything is. And the standard history uh, offered by historians, including the eminent Richard Hofstadter and others, sees uh, Je- uh, Adams's two-volume history basically as a defense of John Adams and an attack on Thomas Jefferson. But Will says this is entirely wrong, that basically Henry Adams, who I wrote my senior thesis on in college and just was so thrilled by his... Education and his sense that he had a Puritan 17th century education that failed to prepare him for life in 21st century America. Uh, Will says Adams really disliked the Adams side of his family uh, and much preferred his mother's southern side and praised Jefferson for betraying Jeffersonian principles through the Louisiana Purchase, embracing an expansive vision of executive power which he had spurned as a founder and being far more effective as a president than Adams himself. Uh, so it's just surprising, beautiful. Uh, p- probably if you if you have to choose, read the original, read, read the Adams two-volume history. But Wills's great book is a wonderful way in. And then I'll just end with three chestnuts uh, that, that are, were on my shelf, and I just brought them out here to the podcast. We've talked a lot about the natural law basis of the American founding and how the framers read Hutchison and Burlamachy and Locke uh, in their conception of unalienable rights that come from God or nature and not government. And I remember from law school, the best account of the philosophy of the American Revolution, which is the name of the book I'm recommending, is by Morton White. And he just describes how thoroughly immersed in the Scottish enlightenment the founders were and how directly they drew on uh, the thinking of this tradition in their natural law of thinking. And uh, two bonuses also just off the shelf, um, Leonard Levy's Origins of the Fifth Amendment and Thomas Emerson's The System of Freedom of Expression. These are um, chestnuts from the 60s and 70s. Levy won the Pulitzer Prize in 69, a beautiful account of the origins of the Fifth Amendment, in particular in its suspicion of oaths and the horror that the framers had of making people swear under oath and being forced to ask questions because then they were put to the cruel trilemma of lying and being subject to eternal damnation of refusing to answer and being subject to contempt, or of telling the truth and being burned for heresy—not a good uh, series of choices—and the Fifth Amendment was designed to prohibit it. Emerson, just one of the great civil libertarians of his generation, longstanding yeah, law school professor, along with Harry Calvin, who's great—the First Amendment tradition—I I would find it hard to pick between the two. I actually read Calvin rather than Emerson in law school, but they're both just great introductions comprehensive introductions to the First Amendment tradition at a time today when it has never been more under siege. So there's your beach reading listeners if you read them and like them let me know what you think.
1: thank you so much for that Jeff that should give them uh, plenty to work on uh, at the beach this summer so let's uh, but let's let's get to the next question which is uh, covering the preamble. I know one of your favorite uh, provisions of the Constitution. Here's the question. It's my faith in the Constitution rests with my strong affinity with the language of the preamble. Would you please talk about the significance of the preamble, the role it played in ratification and in inspiring a people's faith in the document afterward?
0: So let's just start with the very first uh, preamble of the first draft of the Constitution. And this is from James Wilson's draft on July 24th. And there was no preamble in a conventional sense. It merely says resolved that the government of the United States ought to consist of a supreme legislative, judiciary, and executive. One thing we want, I know that all we the people listeners know this, but we've got to teach kids and also students of all ages that there are three branches of government. Uh, The Annenberg Foundation found recently that only a third of Americans can name all three branches of government. A third can't name a single one. This was the main thing that James Wilson wanted people to know in the very first sentence of the original preamble that the government of the U.S. has three branches of government. But in the next draft, the manuscript of the Committee of Detail report, the preamble had evolved, and this is August 3rd, 1787, and it it says famously, We the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, so that was the name of Rhode Island, Connecticut, and so forth, to ordain, declare, and establish the following constitution for the government of ourselves and our posterity. It doesn't have the defend the general welfare, provide for the common defense. It just lists the states and then ordains the constitution for ourselves and our posterity. But by the time of the uh, Committee of Style report written by Governor Morris on September 12th, the preamble has been shortened to we the people of the United States. So why was the language shortened from we the people of the states of Uh, Rhode Island, Providence Plantation, and so forth, to We the People of the United States. There are two theories. Um, One says that Governor Morris, for the Committee of Style, was just uh, being cautious because they didn't know how many states would actually ratify, so they didn't want to spell them out. And also, it was shorter and more elegant to say, We the People of the United States. The other theory that I think Tom and I both favor Is that the change was meant to express James Wilson's profound belief that sovereignty rested in we, the people of the United States as a whole, rather than in we, the people of the individual states, as had been the case under the Articles of Confederation, or of uh, the King in Parliament, as in Britain. And that fundamental transformation of the conception of sovereignty, which was Wilson's great contribution to the founding, is expressed in the preamble. And for that reason, the linguistic change seems significant. You can read more about the linguistic change and the theory of the preamble on the interactive constitution where Erwin Chemerinsky and Michael Stokes Paulson write a joint statement explaining why the preamble is more than just prose. They say, they say that um, it was well understood that at the time of enactment that preambles and legal documents were not themselves substantive provisions and shouldn't be read to contradict, expand, or contract The document's substantive terms, but that doesn't mean the Constitution's preamble lacks legal force. Quite the contrary, the provision of the document that declares the enactment of the provision that follows, it's sometimes called the enacting clause. And that's why it uses the do, ordain, and establish this constitution language, a language that dates back to the earlier draft. And the fact that it's enacted in the name of we the people is hugely significant and expresses the need for popular sovereignty. There are some beautiful speeches by James Wilson um, defending the Constitution in November and December during the ratification of debates, where he says, this Constitution, Mr. President, opens with a solemn and practical recognition of the principle, we the people of the United States. It is announced in their name. It receives its political existence from their authority. They ordain and establish. What is the necessary consequence? Those who ordain and establish have the power, if they think proper, to repeal and annul. A proper attention to this principle may perhaps give ease to the minds of some who have heard much concerning the necessity of a Bill of Rights. So Wilson thinks that the right of we the people to alter and abolish government whenever it threatens liberty rather than protecting it is itself an unalienable and natural right, and it's codified in Article 5. Uh, Finally, there's some interesting questions about whether the preamble is justiciable. In other words, should judges enforce it? And Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, in his separate statement, uh, says that rarely has a Supreme Court decision relied on in, even as a guide uh, in interpreting the Constitution. But Marbury versus Madison said, you can't assume that any clause of the Constitution is intended to be without effect. And therefore, Chemerinsky says um, it should be taken seriously. So uh, there we go. The, the main thing I want you to think about, listeners, is this huge and important shift in the language of the preamble from we, the people of the individual states, to we, the people of the United States. If you want to do some additional research and help Tom and me settle this debate about whether the change was substantive, as we think it was, or stylistic, as uh, some of our friends think it was, um, that would be great. Uh, write in and tell me what you found.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much, Jeff. And and I, I just want to uh, second- uh, what Jeff said about the new exhibit here with these Wilson drafts, you can, if you can come to the Constitution Center and see these rare and precious treasures and really learn, um, you know, learn about probably the most important American that a lot of Americans had, haven't actually heard of, James Wilson, um, it's it's definitely worth the visit and and or check it out online. Uh, But flash-forwarding ahead from the founding to today, uh, here's a question about uh, the recent uh, national injunctions that we've gotten in various cases challenging President Trump's executive orders. Here it is. Uh, Could you please explain how district courts can put a stay on a national order rather than just as it applies in their district or circuit? Or more directly, how was Judge Oreck able to enjoin the entire Sanctuary City executive order for the entire nation rather than just for the Ninth Circuit? I think I understand the argument Uh, With regard to immigration, people can move around once they enter, but I don't understand the argument uh, regarding cities.
0: It's a great question, and it turns out that the national injunction is a relatively recent phenomena. It used to be that injunctions restrained a defendant's conduct uh, with regard to a particular plaintiff, but not the whole world. But in recent years, lower federal courts have started to issue more nationwide injunctions in Texas versus United States, which was a 2015 case. A district court judge famously issued a nationwide injunction against President Obama's uh, deferred action for parents of Americans and lawful permanent residents. That was the DAPA program, and a divided Supreme Court left the ruling and the injunction in place. The Congressional Research Service notes that federal courts aren't necessarily authorized to issue nationwide injunctions. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court hasn't explicitly ruled on the question, but in a 52 case, called Steel versus Bull of a Watch. The Supreme Court um, was interpreting a trademarked Act of 1946, and it said that lower courts may command persons properly before it to cease or perform acts outside its territorial jurisdiction, although it warned that courts shouldn't issue a remedy any broader than necessary. So one important question in these recent cases is whether the nationwide injunctions are too broad, or not. Um, In the lawsuit against uh, President Trump's executive order stripping sanctuary cities of federal funds, the uh, scholar Howard Wasserman, at prof's blog, uh, notes some difficulties as he perceives it with the scope of Judge Oreck's nationwide injunction. Uh, He says that um, the support for the injunction was a case called California and Yamasaki, which Judge Orrick cited for the proposition that the scope of injunctive relief is dictated by the extent of the violation established, not by the geographic extent of the plaintiff. The problem, says Howard Wasserman, is that Judge Orrick excluded the important next word in the quoted sentence, class. The Califano case um, uh, involved an injunction uh, where there were a lot of people were involved and therefore it was appropriate to enjoin them because everyone in the class was a plaintiff and it made sense that the injunction should follow the class nationwide. Uh, Here, by contrast, uh, the question is whether to protect uh, Santa Clara and San Francisco from enforcement of the unconstitutional order, it's necessary that the court also protect other sanctuary cities. And Wasserman says no, because the other cities can bring constitutional challenges of their own and cite Santa Clara as a persuasive precedent. So um, appellate courts and ultimately the Supreme Court might disagree about whether or not the scope of a particular nationwide injunction is necessary. In the travel ban case, I think that all all of the judges concerned felt that there was uh, immediate injury threatened to travelers from around uh, all all of the um, prescribed countries around the globe, and therefore a nationwide injunction was appropriate. But it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, t- Tom to learn, um, at least I, I I learned it that these injunctions are a relatively recent phenomenon. What do you think our mentor Akhil Amar would say about the idea of a single district judge being able to uh, bring the entire federal government to a halt?
1: Well, I think it's it's, it's uh, pretty natural. I think for whether whether it's Akhil or whether it's just you know anyone who. Um, might be concerned about, you know, issues like um, forum shopping, the idea that you might you might seek out um, judges in districts that are more closely ideologically aligned to your position to bring your case, um, uh, that, that, that sort of given those concerns, we, we would be reluctant to have a single unelected district court judge um, basically propound a policy for the entire nation. I mean, I think what's interesting about this question is on the one hand, um, in whether it's President Obama's immigration order or whether it's President Trump's immigration order, um, that what we have in these cases are um, a a policy put down by a particular administration um, that ends up applying quite broadly Um, you know, specific constitutional violations, the Constitution applying to all of us, but specific constitutional violations applying to that national policy. And so I can understand the desire that if we believe that there really is a constitutional violation, that we want to make sure that it isn't done anywhere. But at the same time, that's naturally in tension with this being, again, one judge of hundreds of unelected judges in one relatively small district when it's compared to the rest of the federal judiciary, Um, propounding a policy for the entire nation. Um, I think the other concern is, you know, one of the values we see in the lower courts and in individual um, litigation with adverse parties is the ability to bring a series of challenges in different courts before different judges with different lawyers that allow the legal issues to be um, exhausted before many different smart people with many different smart people making arguments. And so that when the Supreme Court ultimately hears a case... A lot of those arguments have percolated, and they're able to consider it more fully than if they are just hearing it coming from one spot. And so, um, you know, both of those things, there's at least a concern on the one hand of the democratic legitimacy of a single district court judge, um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, concerns about wanting to avoid ongoing constitutional violations if they're happening. It's a really tough question.
0: It is very tough, and your observations reminded me of a letter Uh, which i just Googled because I didn't remember the text, by Jefferson to George Hay, Washington, where he's expressing concern about the idea of a single district judge being able to issue subpoenas against the president. And this is a 1807 letter where he says, uh, Jefferson says, would the executive be independent of the judiciary if he were subject to the commands of the latter and to imprisonment for disobedience? If the several courts could bandy him from pillar to post, that was the phrase I remembered, keep him constantly trudging from north to south and east to west and withdraw him entirely from his constitutional duties. The intention of the Constitution that each branch should be independent of the others is further manifested by the means it is furnished to each to protect itself from the enterprises of force attempted on them by the others. And to none has it given more effectual or diversified means than to the executive. So that was really a concern that a single district judge shouldn't be able to stop the president from doing his job just because he may have felt that a subpoena was relevant. But I gather that these uh, Supreme Court precedents we've been talking about have not invoked that logic in allowing district courts to issue national injunctions.
1: Yeah, no, it'll be interesting if, you know, one of these cases ends up before the Supreme Court. A lot of people will focus on, you know, the underlying policy, but there could also be these really important civil procedure, federal courts, federal jurisdiction issues, not just lurking in the background, but could have a lot of effects down the line for a lot of other cases, um, even apart just from... Sanctuary cities or immigration orders, but really the way in which uh, lower courts are going to do their jobs uh, moving forward. Wonderful.
0: Well, I could ask you the next question, but why don't you ask me and then I'll ask you after
1: after I've given it a shot. Uh, sure. So let's 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 go back in time. We have a question about the great Chief Justice uh, John Marshall, and it's a uh, it's it's a good one. Uh, can John Marshall be described as a strict constructionist? We the people, listeners.
0: I've got some more exciting news. Uh, Just last week, we opened a phenomenal exhibit on the constitutional legacy of John Marshall here at the Constitution Center. And I hope we'll have a web-based version soon so you can check it out. But it is so cool. It has the desk, uh, as you heard during the Marshall podcast last week, on which Marshall wrote uh, his dispatches in the famous XYZ affair from Paris. And it also has Marshall's Gallstones, which are so gross, but they're from the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, which is this museum of medical curiosities, which has distended bladders and gallstones from the Civil War. And Marshall comes to Philadelphia and uh, has to under, go under the knife uh, by the aptly named Dr. Physic. And without anesthesia, the brave chief survives the operation. And there's a portrait of him in the exhibit, um, the same. Weeks pa- painted the same weeks of the operation, and it shows his courage and fortitude. Uh, the exhibit also has the letter where Marshall says where Marshall says that it was at Valley Forge that he came to see Congress as my government and America as my country, and that's the beginning of the answer to this question of can he be con- described as a strict constructionist? Uh, b- broadly, of course, Marshall was the great nationalist. He was a uh, uh, took Hamilton's position on the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States and thought that the Necessary and proper clause should be construed broadly enough to allow uh, Congress to regulate the economy and to meet common ends. Uh, and for their for for, the, for that reason, he said, let the end be legitimate. Uh, that uh, generally, congressional power should be construed broadly. And yet, Marshall, um, although a Hamiltonian, was not a unlimited in his conception of the scope of the commerce power. And I know this because I'm just working this week on the uh, final chapter to my book on William Howard Taft. And Chief Justice Taft was a tremendous uh, admirer of Marshall. Once when walking past a statue of Marshall on the west side of the Capitol, a companion asked him, would you rather be Marshall uh, or president? And Taft says, I'd rather have been Marshall than any other American unless it had been Washington. And I'm inclined to think I would rather have been Marshall than Washington. He made this country. And then Taft walks on a few more steps and stops, and he says, taking it all in all, I think Washington was the greatest American, the greatest man, I believe, of his generation. Marshall is certainly the greatest jurist America ever produced, and Hamilton, our greatest constructive statesman. So uh, then I delve into this really fascinating opinion. Basically, Taft construes federal power broadly, and he upholds most of the federal laws that he considers during his tenure, most of which involve prohibition and the Volstead Act. He'd opposed prohibition as a policy matter, but as a good um, steward of the Constitution, believes that prohibition uh, convictions have to be enforced. But there's just one important case where Taft votes to strike down a federal law, and that's the Federal Child Labor Act, um, which he concludes is not a tax. It's a federal child labor tax And Taft says it's not a permissible attempt to raise taxes, but an impermissible attempt to regulate the hours of labor of children, which is a purely state authority. And Taft quotes Marshall's opinion upholding the Bank of the United States in McCullough and Maryland, where Marshall suggests the congressional power, although broad, is not unlimited. And this is is Marshall in McCullough. Should Congress, in the execution of its powers, adopt measures which are prohibited by the Constitution, it would become the painful duty of this tribunal should a case requiring such a decision come before it to say that the act was not the law of the land. Uh, Now, some have been unconvinced by Taft's distinction between property that could be regulated by Congress and property that couldn't be, like the product of child labor versus stolen cars, but it reflects his Marshallian view that Congress has power to regulate interstate commerce, although vast, were not unlimited. So I think the question is really important because it reminds us that there was this uh, very distinguished, perhaps the most distinguished tradition in constitutional interpretation uh, dating back first to the Federalist Party of Marshall and then continued by the Republican Party of Taft, which is essentially Hamiltonian and does believe in the very broad construction of national authority, but an authority that's not without limits. And it's significant that in his opinion, in the uh, case upholding the health care mandate and the Affordable Care Act, Justice Antonin Scalia cited Taft's opinion and basically said, if this is a tax, then everything is a tax and there's no limit to the taxing power. So um, you can quibble about which way Taft would have come down on the Affordable Care Act. But I think we can be confident that Marshall, who only votes to strike down one federal law, and that's the only federal law that struck down between Marbury uh, versus Madison uh, and the Dred Scott decision decided in 1857. The 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 federal law that uh, Marshall strikes down uh, extends the court's uh, m- mandatory uh, jurisdiction, and and Marshall says that the language of the Constitution is exclusive. Other than that, he's really broad in construing congressional power, but he stresses that it's not unlimited. So that's a long way of answering an important question. Marshall was not a strict constructionist, but he also was not a living constitutionalist who thinks that Congress's power is completely unlimited. I think you could call him a federalist who believes or or just a constitutionalist who believes in broad but constrained powers for each of the three branches and believes that each branch has a coordinate responsibility and duty to interpret the Constitution. Marshall doesn't say in Marbury that the Supreme Court alone can interpret the Constitution, but that all three branches have the ability to do so. And in that sense, both Marshall and Taft call to mind the uh, constitutional amendment that was proposed but not adopted by James Madison, which basically, you can find this on the interactive constitution, would have uh, said that each branch can only exercise its own powers and the legislative can't exercise the powers of the judiciary and uh, so forth. It's a, it's a separation of powers amendment and it was um, inspired by George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776, which declares that the legislative and executive power of the states should be separate and distinct from the judiciary." Um, I, I I can't help but share this wonderful plug for Taft that Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit recently shared with me and allowed me to use in the book he said that William Howard Taft is the most underappreciated constitutional figure since George Mason, who refused to sign the original constitution because it didn't have a Bill of Rights that beautifully encapsulates the constitutionalism of both Taft and Mason, who, uh, although not strict constructionists, were constitutionalists in their very formal conception of the separated but coordinate duties of each of the three branches. And I would say that Taft and Marshall think that Congress and the executive should have broad but constrained powers within their spheres. So that's why uh, Taft also broadly interprets the president's power to fire uh, officials whom he appoints, but also thinks as president that the president can only do what the Constitution explicitly authorizes. This is a great tradition, uh, ladies. It's the greatest constitutional tradition of Marshall, and it's so interesting that it doesn't track on to our current strict constructionist versus living constitutionalism debates. It's a kind of uh, constrained constitutionalism uh, that is nevertheless quite expansive in the powers that it grants to each of these constrained branches.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much, Jeff. And I would just add on to, for uh, summer reading suggestions, a very quick one. Go and read George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. It's very short, um, it predated the Declaration of Independence, greatly influenced the Declaration of Independence, and all of the state constitutions during that period. It's an extraordinary document. Um, you'll see some precursors to our Bill of Rights, but also a lot of the other rights that wound up enshrined in our state constitution. So George Mason definitely, uh, definitely underrated founder. We were just
0: talking, Tom, about why it is that Mason seems to have no great biography, and you had some good thoughts. Why is that?
1: I mean, I, I, I don't know precisely why. Um, I mean, I think that part of it was that you know Mason's an interesting figure in that he was greatly respected in his own day as a great uh, intellectual. He was friendly with George Washington, but he also was a homebody. He didn't like to leave Gunston Hall, his beautiful estate. Um, he was a neighbor of George Washington, so right there on the Potomac. Uh, suffered from gout, loved his family. Um, And so he really only came into public service in really two really hugely significant ways. One, when Virginia was putting together its state constitution, which is where he created the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which, again, I mean, it's such an amazingly important document and such an amazing expression of... Um, the freedoms we believe in as Americans, and then left Virginia for if not the first, maybe the second time, but one of the only times in his life, he left Virginia to come to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. And although we may remember him as the person who did not sign the Constitution, he was actually a really constructive member of the convention. He was a huge participant, and he really you know wound up with great sacrifice to himself like the 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 fact that he didn't sign the constitution forever estranged him from his friend george washington many of his contemporaries he would go on to the virginia ratifying convention and oppose the constitution and um you know because of that um while still remembered as a great american in his own day certainly um, did all of that at great personal sacrifice to his relationships um, and it's interesting because even during those ratification debates, there would be people at the convention that would, you know, not go after some of the more popular figures who oppose the Constitution, but would go after George Mason, effectively saying, George, where have you been all these years? You've been sitting at Gunston Hall while well, we've been creating a country. It's nice that you basically came out of retirement for this. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, basically, we're, we're, we're going to listen to Richard Henry and Patrick Henry and these people have been more um, active in government for a longer period of time.
0: Wow. A reminder of the necessity of engaging in politics, something that neither Mason nor Taft was especially fond of. There's a great Mason a memorial in D.C., not far from the Martin Luther King Memorial and the FDR Memorial. He's sitting, looking very dour but uh, libertarian <laughs> in the middle of a beautiful grove. And uh, listeners, if you're near D.C., go inspire yourself about liberty by paying homage to George Mason.
1: What's next? Excellent. So uh, the 25th Amendment has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, can you just talk about how the amendment works and what it was intended to cover?
0: So I recently had a great homework assignment from uh, Yoni Applebaum, my editor at The Atlantic, and he said, hey, Jeff, go find out about the legislative history of the 25th Amendment and what are the standards for deciding whether or not a president is unable to discharge the duties and power of his office under Section four of the amendment, which allow uh, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, when they think that the president is unable to discharge his duties, to certify that he can't. And if the president objects, then two thirds of both houses of Congress can override him and the vice president remains the acting president. So all of this is in the Atlantic piece, which you can check out if you want the details. But the takeaway for me was that the decision about whether or not the president is disabled is ultimately a political question, and that conclusion comes from the founding father of the 25th Amendment, Senator Birch Bayh, who uh, is the only person, aside from the founding fathers, to have proposed two enacted amendments, uh, the uh, uh, 25th uh, Amendment. Um, as well as the 26th Amendment to the Constitution. He also championed the Equal Rights Amendment, which fell three states short of ratification. But Bai, who's the only fa- non-founding father to draft two enacted amendments to the Constitution and proposed what became the 25th Amendment 50 years ago, which uh, it was, it was proposed January 6th, 65, ratified February 10th, 67, which was 50 years ago. And we did have that great 50th anniversary podcast on the 25th Amendment, Bayh wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where he quoted President Dwight Eisenhower, whose illness had helped to precipitate the drafting of the amendment, in support of the proposition that, quote, and these are Eisenhower's words, the determination of the president's disability is really a political question. And um, By explained this by saying, yes, the best medical mind should be available to the president, but uh, doctors can't diagnose by committee. And the vice president and the cabinet said by are uniquely able to determine when it's in the nation's best interest for the vice president to take the reins. It turns out that this is piggybacking off a debate that dates back to the time of the founding when, in the Constitutional Convention, there was a dispute about what sort of language uh, to include about when the vice president can take over when the president is unable to discharge the duties and powers of his office. And one of the founders, uh, Rutledge, basically said, what counts as disabled and who decides? That was his question, and the framers couldn't answer it, and it, the 25th Amendment was an attempt to answer it, but the ultimate decision, uh, according at least to the main framer of the 25th Amendment, and his aide, uh, Professor John Furick, former dean of Fordham Law School who teaches there, uh, they believed that that would ultimately be a political question. Uh, so that, that was the conclusion that uh, at the moment, there's uh, it would seem far-fetched to imagine that the Vice President and a majority of the cabinet and two-thirds of both houses of Congress would deem it in the political interests of the Republican Party or the Republic itself to deem uh, our President uh, unable to discharge the parties and the powers and duties of his office. But if in the future they change their mind, there's nothing in the text and history of the amendment to preclude that conclusion.
1: Excellent. thanks for that, jeff. um Here's another one about a a separate provision of the Constitution. Can you discuss the original reasoning and basis for the Electoral College? And a related question comes from another devoted listener, Yvette Chin, who asks, can you explain why it seems like no one is challenging the constitutionality of the Electoral College on the basis of the 14th Amendment? Great
0: questions. Um, We did have a phenomenal podcast. I think it was one of our uh, really great ones uh, with Alex Kayser and James Caesar about the Electoral College not long ago. Um, Kayser questioned why we still have the Electoral College. He said, when we think of democracy, we think the person who won the most votes should win, and that's true for every other election except the presidency. But uh, Jim Caesar defended the Electoral College as an important element of our federal system. He noted in the podcast and also on his interactive Constitution explainer that the electoral system is complex and non-uniform state-based process designed like the U.S. Senate to filter public opinion through a deliberative intermediate institution. So, Tom, I I got a little more sympathy, I guess, for the Electoral College or at least understanding of its genesis uh, in seeing the evolution of the powers of the presidency in our uh, American Treasures exhibit. So, again, listeners, go back to constitutioncenter.org forward slash treasures And you'll see that the first draft of the presidency had a six-year term that was non-renewable. The second draft um, had a seven-year non-renewable term with a president elected by the legislature. And I'll see if I can get the language fast because it's so neat. Um, here Here we go. This is the exact text. The executive power of the United States shall be vested in a single person. His style, S-T-I-L-E, shall be the president of the United States of America, and his title shall be his excellency. He shall be elected by the ballot by the legislature. He shall hold his office during the term of seven years, but shall not be elected a second time." That's because Madison fears direct election. He wants to filter public opinion and thinks the legislature is a good filtering mechanism. Wilson favors direct popular election. And the compromise is the Electoral College, which both filters and provides some link to the people. Uh, At least that was its justification, as many of us know by now or remember from the podcast. The hope was that the electors would exercise independent judgment um, and that they would choose the wisest and best uh, uh, candidates. Uh, that quickly fell by the wayside with the rise of the party system after the election of 1800. So very quickly, the Electoral College ceased to perform the role that it had been intended to perform. And ever since 1800, it has essentially ratified the choices of first the party bosses and now much more recently the party primaries rather than exercising independent judgment. Uh, so that's uh, some stuff on the Electoral College and check out the interactive constitution and the great podcast. For more, I guess I'll just close by noting the founders' four main objections for objectives for the Electoral College to provide the presidency with its own base of support, as opposed to selection of the president by Congress, which would have risked making the president subservient to the legislature. They wanted to pre- supply a basis of some popular legitimacy for the president. Um, third, the electors are still... Uh, able to exercise independent judgment and choose the most fit candidates so they can prevent the election of demagogues and a silver-tongued uh, uh, t- tyrants. And finally, the Electoral College is supposed to channel the energies of major political figures if the choice of the president is restricted to those who had proven records of service, those are the ones who would be known by the electors. A signal would be sent to all hopefuls to pursue serious political careers and avoid engaging in what Alexander Hamilton called the little arts of popularity. Those little arts today have overtaken our electoral system, and we have a very different uh, popular and plebiscitary presidency than the framers could have imagined.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the two other elements in there for the Electoral College um, are... Uh, you know, one, the, the framers also had the expectation that very few people after Washington would have a, a, a national reputation large enough to actually be able to succeed in the Electoral College. So there was an assumption among the founders that many more of our elections would go to the House of Representatives for decision. Um, so that's part of the reason why they were able to come to the compromise of the Electoral College is precisely because they didn't expect it to be used quite as frequently as it has been. The other is that the framers are trying to figure out what to do with had to had had deal with the problem of, uh, of representation in the context of there being slaves. And so the Electoral College allowed um, the Three-Fifths Compromise to provide for greater representation of the slave states in the presidential vote. And so it was a way of finding a way around that problem in antebellum America.
0: Those are two crucial uh, considerations that moved the Electoral College one, I, I just I'm just drawn back to Taft because I'm in the middle of uh, I, the, the, this this thing is due in just a few weeks, the final chapter, and I'm so into the conclusion. It's the, here's an amazing passage by Archie Butts, who is the closest aide to both Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. You've got to be real junkies, uh, We the People listeners, to. Want to read uh, Archie Butts, but it's just the most riveting diary <laughs> of this uh, uh, military aide from the South, a tragic life after this beautiful service to Taft and Roosevelt. He went down on the Titanic, and Taft was just heartbroken. Um, but he's so fair and generous in his estimation, and at one point he says, um, What really makes me almost ill with indignation is the fact that we have all our lives heard the American people say, oh, if only we had a president who could act with independence and not be hampered by second-term fetish. And here they have one, and they don't even appreciate the fact. If they do, it only gives them cause for criticism. So Butts is saying, far from thinking about a second term, Taft doesn't want one because he scorns popularity. He has a judicial and Madisonian temperament and thinks the president should never change his policies in order to court what Hamilton called the little arts of popularity. And Butts quotes Taft as saying, I've made up my mind, Archie, as to one thing. I will not play a part for popularity. If the people do not approve of me or my administration after they have time to know me, then I shall not let it worry me. And I most certainly shall not change my methods. So there's something both noble and antiquated about Taft's conception of the presidency, a pre-Jacksonian conception where the president has a duty to ignore the will of the people and make independent judgments in consultation with the party that he thinks will serve the republic. But by 1912, that conception already uh, had been overtaken by the more plebiscitary presidency. And that's why Taft lost in 1912 to two plebiscitary presidents, uh, presidential candidates, uh, Roosevelt and the victor, Woodrow Wilson.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it is striking, just going back to the Constitutional Convention, that that these, these debates over how powerful the president should be, what roles he should have in our government, the the, the delegates themselves wrestled with them from the beginning. I mean, Madison came to the convention. He admitted to Washington. He actually hadn't thought through fully what the executive should do. And so what you see in the drafts we have here at the Constitution Center and in our interactive online, are you know a series of debates over who's going to select the president is it the legislature is it something like the electoral college is it the direct vote someone even suggested maybe it should just be by 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 lot of a random number members of congress decide who the president is and figuring that out who should you know should the president be involved in presidential appointments initially um... the delegates Um, you know, end up lodging many of the appointment powers, including for the Supreme Court and the Senate, not the presidency. And so there's that, the question of whether the president should be able to be reelected or not. Obviously, we've gone back and forth through that through the course of our nation. And so this is, I think, a function of, you know, American constitutional culture that's natural from the beginning as, as a nation that broke away from a monarchy, trying to create a republic that we would try to figure out um, how do we figure out How do we figure out a way to have both an executive that can act and be energetic but also be constrained? Framers had a tough time coming up with a system. We've continued to wrestle with it from the framing to Lincoln to Taft to Obama to Trump, and it remains with us.
0: We, I'm obviously in the Taft tank, uh, as it were. Do you think that that Taftian conception of the presidency, uh, who's heedless of popularity and public opinion and merely... Uh, does what he think the Constitution requires is feasible today? And who who do you wh- which modern president do you think is most like Taft?
1: I think we've so frequently um, we have had precedents that have have been relatively less publicly prominent, but it seems like we always grasp towards wanting someone who's more public than that. I think, if anything, and this is just me putting on my amateur political observer hat, not necessarily constitutional hat, is that if you can combine uh, you know some of the features of the modern presidency that where the president really I think there there is an expectation that the president will be the face and voice of the nation. If you can combine that with some of the judiciousness and independence of Taft, that it would bring together, I think the elements of um, constitutional statesmanship that people I think want from their presidency from their president, but also someone who really is the leader of the nation. So I think I think for modern America. Um, uh, We'd recoil from a president that is, you know, as reserved as as, as Taft, but I think there is something where we are still, you know, we want, we frequently want um, um, a president that can sometimes, tr- you know, transcend interest and party um, and lead us as a nation.
0: Beautiful. Let's combine the best elements of the modern uh, plebiscitary presidency with the judiciousness of Taft, that's an inspiring motto for us all, and, and also we can all be inspired by the great campaign slogan, get on a raft with Taft, which I actually don't counsel uh, listeners doing, but is uh, I, I would get on a raft with Taft, but you, you don't have to, Tom. <laughs>
1: I I think I'll refrain, Jeff.
0: Okay, that sounds good. But i sorry, I can't resist. You know, he was not large for most of his life. He was large as president because he hated being president and wanted to be chief justice and ate his feelings. But as soon as he stopped being president, he went on a paleo diet and lost 70 pounds. And he was remarkably svelte for most of his post-presidency. And as chief justice, you'll see the portraits of him are incredibly sexy. I mean, he's just a beautiful man. So...
1: Well, As 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 I said to you, Jeff, one of the books that I I read to my infant son is President Taft was stuck in the bath. Um, And I will be sure to to, uh, tell Teddy that that, in fact, probably never happened. And furthermore, that Taft himself for, for much of his life. Um, um, was 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 a svelte constitutionalist.
0: Please tell Teddy to this. That book maligns the man because it was the White House usher Ike Hoover who fought Scott Bomboyer, our great web editor, is sitting here, and he debunked the tap, Taft in a bath uh, libel and this notion. the The American people are obsessed with these bodies of Taft bathing, and the citizens of uh, of, of of Colorado actually. A uh, meet him at the train station with a specially constructed bathing costume that they want him to put on so that he can go to the Glenwood Springs bath and they can gawk at the president. And despite these these really cruel popular memes of the the president in his bath, he was never stuck in a bath. And after he became chief, he couldn't have been because he was so incredibly lean and just buff that no no bath could have uh, contained him.
1: Well, Jeff, I think that there's no better way to end than on that note. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for your phenomenal questions. I gave you my email last time about uh, Ask Jeff Questions, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. There will be constitutional questions arising every single day in the news. Email me the questions as they come up. I can't answer them immediately. I need to rely on Tom and uh, Lana Ulrich and Nakandra Iannacci and our incredible constitutional prep team, but we'll have another Ask Jeff uh, soon and collect the questions and answer them as best we can. Thanks so much. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Scott Bomboy and Nakandra Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Special thanks again to Tom for another superb series of questions. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using ConstitutionCTR. And sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. If you like it, or if you don't, let me know. Jay Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. We're trying to collect all of our constitutional content in one place, and I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall. On iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Be the people as a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you We're inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Lifelong learners, we the people listeners, sign up to become a member of the Constitution Center at any level. It doesn't matter uh, the amount, although we need your support. The goal is for you to become a member of the Constitution Center family so that you can be fully engaged in this beautiful community of lifelong learners. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.